It has been a slow week. What do you mean? For time has passed at the normal rate. No, but from a from a things to go on the show notes perspective. <laughs> I put plenty of lines of things on the show notes, like stuff. You, you and added more stuff, stuff and more stuff. Do you want to talk about stuff? And then you know, twenty minutes from now, we can talk about more stuff. <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's let's go. So for what's it. up with stuff, um, Alex? But I don't like I don't like the term slow week. Time passed at the usual rate, or at least relatively speaking. Well, time doesn't pass. At, well, perception of time certainly does never passes at the same at the same rate at all. In fact, time uh, perception of time is higher in higher GDP countries. It's also higher. Well, perception of time is faster in younger people. Uh, because as you get older, it takes longer for the neurons to do their thingamadoodads. So effectively, your clock rate of your brain goes down. <laughs> well, yes, but we're ta- I think we're talking about two different things. As far as, because yes, there was a Veritasium video, which... <laughs> I mean, it wasn't just Veritasium, but yes, it is a very good video about it. <laughs> uh, Veritasium time. There we go. Um, is it? Wasn't that an older video? I don't know, but oh. I, I, I know I encountered it recently, and so I'm assuming that's probably <laughs> idea into your head, too. Yeah. Um, but but uh, as you get older, you perceive time to be moving. I mean, a, the, the whole idea of an hour when you were a little kid was, well, I'm going to play with Legos and then play with more Legos and then watch TV for a while and then go outside and then play with some more Legos. Now it's like, oh, I've only got an hour before I have to, I'm not going to bother starting anything. I just got to go get ready to go. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but that's not necessarily the perception of time. That's just you being more pragmatic. No, 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 no. It's really not. It's a matter of if you, uh, if, if, if you as a kid say we're going to Disney, if, if your parents say we're going to Disneyland in a month, Go, oh my god, I gotta wait a whole month? Exactly. Now you go a month. Oh, geez. Okay, so I've gotta let me figure out what I can schedule or like it's this is I, I needed more warning, please. <laughs> this is no, coming up very is still soon. a long time. Kevin, a month is still a long well, time. You're just old. That's the thing then. is I'm I'm getting older. The older we have we have different time perceptions because I'm years into the future of time advancement. <laughs> Poor Kevin. I do sort of wonder, though, to what extent uh, that perception continues. Like, is if if we look at what my subjective view of an hour or a day is uh, now versus what it was when I was a kid, does that mean that when I'm seventy, if I'm seventy, that I'll go, "Oh my gosh, I've only got ten years to <laughs> left," or you know, whatever, and that feels like six months? I don't know. Well, wouldn't it go the well, no, you're right. You're saying that a month now seems like a short amount of time. Right. Which is really sort of counterintuitive to what you would think would happen if you're slowing. No, okay. That's about right. Like, I find... That's not counterintuitive. I, I have a coworker, and uh, they he's celebrating his... I'm strong. I know, it's weird. They haven't all quit? <laughs> having to work with you? Yeah, well, wow. you know what? Somehow they struggle through. But no, my coworker, um, <laughs> he's celebrating his daughter's first birthday... And I was sitting there, I was like, didn't, didn't, didn't you guys like announce you were going to have a kid like three months ago? Like, (laughs) well, maybe they wanted a trip to like a black hole or something. Well, no, but I mean, when, when my parents said you're going to have a little sibling, 
Be like, cool, when? Oh, forever later. Okay. <laughs> Let me know when that becomes somewhat timely or relevant, because this is just like maybe sometime in the in the abstract future, one day you may have a sibling. <laughs> yeah, I don't really remember. I was too young. I mean, my sister and I are only three years apart, mm -hmm. so I was only like two and change when they were like, you're going to have a sister, or a, I don't think they said a sister, a, a sibling. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, I don't really remember that whole thing. Fair enough. I actually got to spend uh, some time with my family uh, this, uh, this weekend. They were here looking at colleges. Uh, my, my younger sister is, is looking at colleges in the area, and it is... Ooh is very exciting but also i'm like but you were like four years old why how how does that you must work? have lowered the college admission exactly age. like this is that's very very impressive you are a savant that is awesome <laughs> so anyway she's gonna live in your apartment then she won't she'll, she'll live <laughs> off campus commute save some money I that way i don't know if that's the plan we'll have to see <laughs> you can get a bunk bed oh you yeah have plenty of space perfect uh, but no, so when we, but in addition to growing old, there's also the idea that the more unique experiences that you have and kind of, because we have this very repetitive, you know, you zone out as you drive to work, you do your regular work stuff, you zone out as you come home and then you zone out and watch Netflix and then you just repeat, uh, those days don't become particularly memorable. And so the more memorable experiences we have, the longer time seems to pass. And so there can be the idea of fast weeks and slow weeks. That is, yeah. that is my point. And so this is a slow week. You you, you weren't you, you weren't like hooked on the elections. We're not going to talk about politics again. <laughs> we we drifted very close to talking about politics in the last episode. We did. I, We're not going to do yeah, it. I had to nope. do some gratuitous editing. Instead, let's talk about rockets that didn't do anything. <laughs> that sounds that sounds like a brilliant idea, Alex. What didn't happen in space today? There were no rocket launches by SpaceX. They've been pushed off till tomorrow. I was hoping we'd get to do like a little bit, not like live, but mm -hmm. like, a, a, like a few minutes after, like, oh, it blew up or, oh, it, it didn't, it landed. Well, here's the thing. Stuff. I'm thinking, yeah, so obviously we record these, uh, generally speaking, the Wednesday before, uh, the Wednesday, the week before they go out. Um, and so it's Wednesday here and they were supposed to go to space and then they were like, eh, so now they're going to do it tomorrow. Um, procrastinators after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, it's too much work. Let's do it tomorrow. Exactly. I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling kind of tired today. Can we just push back that deadline? He he one's like, oh, I just want to kind of drive around in a Tesla today. <laughs> I don't, don't want to launch a rocket. It doesn't, you know. Right. So the I launch, know, the launch is happening tomorrow. Do you know what time it's happening on, on Thursday? 648 uh p.m yes already so if anybody happens to uh happens to listen to this podcast a week ahead of time you know when to tune in uh, I, I will certainly be planning on tuning in uh, though i think because we have this whole problem of of being a week of having to cover things kind of a week in advance i think we should record both the celebration of its success <laughs> and the commiseration of its failure all right. So the following segment will be whatever happened. Right. Exactly. Or I may just yes. leave them both in because I find it entertaining. But <laughs> well, that would ruin the point of it, Alex. We landed on a ship. We 
And there were aliens on top of the rocket. Can you believe oh, it? Okay, so we're going to have to have a lot of different takes for this then. <laughs> yes. We need to record every Something possible every permutation of this rocket launch. Yeah. Exactly. All right, so we should record one in which Abraham Lincoln returns with the spaceship. All right. Yep. I mean, obviously, um, that, that, should be, that should be probably the first. If we're ranking these in order of likelihood, it should definitely be like the third or fourth on the list. Yeah. Um, we probably can skip the one where the rocket falls back down so hard it destroys the Earth because there'll be no one left to watch. Oh, listen. yeah, that's, that's a very pragmatic approach. We can call all of those <laughs> world-ending. Yeah, so yeah, we can basically trim that whole portion of the tree. That'll save us a huge amount of time. Yeah, to be fair, we can also pretty much trim anything that involves like a collision with uh, network satellites because then the internet will be down, which will leave us well, plenty of time to record... A new yeah, episode, true. so you know, gives us gives true. us some additional time. We probably can t take away anything that will generate large EMPs, right. um, mostly because we won't have any electricity. So, right. All right, I think that narrows it down to about an infinite number, right? Which is but a smaller uh, infinite than infinite plus one, right, exactly. Yeah. A smaller infinity than yeah. prior infinities. All right, let, let's start at the All top. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, which is the which is the most likely? I guess is the question because if it blowing up, you because think so? they're pretty sure it's going to blow up. Really? That is. Yeah, they're going to have less fuel than usual because they have to boost it to a higher altitude. No wonder they're they decided. I'm too depressed. They're not doing it today. That is. Yeah, I can understand wanting to procrastinate on that task if you have very low expectations of it doing well. Yeah, they're pretty sure it's going to run out of fuel and uh, just maybe not even hit the barge this time You'd around. You think they could calculate that? Well, I mean, it has to do with winds and stuff. If you're fighting a wind that happens to gust through, you're going to be using a lot more fuel to get back to where you're going. Right. So what is oh. the... Well, no, because you don't have to get back to where you're going. Actually, no, you shouldn't have to worry about wind at all because the benefit of, of launching things on... of landing it on the boat is you don't have to cancel out your lateral velocity and then reverse it. Well, you just you actually you just fail to You're, go to space. So you could just move the barge a little closer to account for the wind resistance. I don't actually think it follows the parabolic arc. I actually think it does slow down, stop, and revert. Well, not stop. It cancels out its horizontal movement um, and then reverses and comes closer to shore. That is, I think you've followed out. That is, I, Alex, I think, I think I have a great idea for SpaceX then. <laughs> <laughs> well, the issue is that if you... If you had it follow the parabolic arc, it would wind up like thousands and thousands of miles across the ocean instead of just like the few hundred that it winds up. But then put the boat further away then. I, I don't know, Kevin. I, I just remember reading the... Uh, I mean, what, is, what, what could possibly be the overhead in cost of just moving the boat out a little further in terms of well, recuperating the... Like, it, it, there's no way... But like, oh man, like we send boats across the ocean sometimes. Like that's something we know how to do. <laughs> we do it efficiently. We've been doing it for a long time. But we're like, no, that's way too expensive. It's much better to have the rocket reverse course, spend a whole bunch of extra fuel, and probably crash land onto well, the boat. You do have to use up the fuel anyway. You, It's easier to land with no fuel than it is with certain amounts well, of fuel. It, well we should clarify it's not easy to land with no fuel from space like <laughs> well, it's easy to it's it. easy to finalize your descent with no fuel well no it's easy to land with a very small amount of fuel it's not easy to land with no fuel at all that, that'd be very impressive 
be great. <laughs> it's, it's an EM drive, basically. They've solved it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not super certain on their orbital mechanics and where exactly, but it, I do seem to remember that it d- doesn't follow the true parabolic and it does arrest at least somewhat of it, some of its horizontal m- momentum and uh, perhaps even all of it and start reversing course. I do wonder just how much you can be- actually get out of um, just, and this is because I've watched too many Scott Manley videos, um, but just or- reorienting, <laughs> well, reorienting the craft to basically using the, the lifting body as a, as a sail. You know what I mean? You know, if yeah. you point it as a dart, then yeah, you're going to get very little resistance. If you angle yourself into the into the airstream, and you'd be like, "We're going that way." Does that really work for a like a pencil shaped rocket? They do have those air fins that they right. use to help steer when they're returning. So my, that kind yeah, of my uses guess that. is that it's it's well, I guess I don't know. They've got to they've got to have some sort of. I mean, it's a question of how much torque can actually be applied. If you're going very fast. It probably is very difficult to point a dart off off of its velocity yeah. vector, but if it has, but you know, presumably it has to have some torque to actually get the thing to space in the first place. So it's got to have something there. Um, it's just a question of how how high power that is, and if it's yeah, if it's coming down at a ridiculously high speed, then yeah, it's going to want to drift back into its airstream, and so you're going to have to have a lot of torque to counteract that. But still, parabolas. I think someone should call up Elon Musk and let him know about those because those seem like they could be a little <laughs> promising. Well, I mean, it was promising because they did land. It was pretty cool. They, they didn't land on the boat. Yeah, they did. Yeah, well, sort of. <laughs> but I, I'm recording in the eventuality that they do. Oh, oh, okay. We've switched over to the the idea that they do. Okay. Well, in that case, well, hooray, Alex! Hooray! Hooray! We've, we've revolutionized the boating industry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I'm I'm very can I so so what can we look forward to in the future of boating, Alec? If we step into your cathedral of future predictions. <laughs> I wanted an amphitheater, not a cathedral. <laughs> Sorry, an amphitheater of, of the future. What is what well, does the future every, of boating look like in, in twenty years? Well, every yacht that's larger than a, a certain size has a federal mandate like rocket landing pad in the event of an emergency. Um, okay. So NASA can abort to any of the millionaire yachts okay. um, anywhere it's safe. Okay. Um, that's probably the biggest, the biggest impact on the boating industry that as we know Impact it. is probably the appropriate term. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed it is. Okay, so what is the actual payload that they're sending up? I, I forgot to... Forgot to take a look. I usually try and keep an eye on that, but well, I don't really know what it does. Um, I just know that its launch is interesting because originally, when Cess Corporation contracted <laughs> SpaceX to send up their Cess, I think it may 9, be just SES. Maybe I SES Cess whatever. Okay, so it is the um, largest satellite dedicated to serving the Asia Pacific region for Cess or SES. With its payload of 81 high-powered Q-band transponder equivalents, it'll be providing unparalleled coverage. Now, they don't say coverage of what? Why like, is it shade? Like, it's just like, it's enormous. Just like, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> wonderful thing for whenever the sun's too bright, we'll just, you know, put that over there. So, yes, it is. It's designed to deliver uh, high-speed broadband services and mobile backhaul to remote regions, whatever backhaul is. 
that is an interesting word. <laughs> so the only the only reason I knew anything about this particular mission is that when SpaceX was originally contracted to launch this bat- space satellite, it was actually originally contracted to launch it into a lower orbit. Um, and then the satellite itself would use its maneuvering thrusters and such to slowly, over the course of months, position itself into a higher geostationary orbit. Um, however, this launch has been postponed um, by months and months and months because SpaceX had an accident where one of their rockets blew up shortly after launch right. um, and resulted in a mission failure. Yep. So this was a, a, a payload launch that got that is delayed the only, because that of is that. the only one that I've watched uh, live. Because <laughs> I was I was midair uh, when we actually landed landed the one. The only one that I got to watch was an unparalleled disaster. So I take I, <laughs> I take full responsibility, Alex. I apologize. <laughs> it's okay, Kevin. Uh, and so what that means is that because it got delayed, SpaceX agreed that okay, we'll boost it up into a higher orbit, so it'll take less time for you to internally maneuver to your higher orbit. Mm-hmm. Which is why this is a different trajectory and why they're pretty sure that it's not going to be able to land. Because now they're boosting it up into a higher orbit than originally planned. Right. Um, and yeah, so it's a broadband satellite. But that's not the interesting bit. <laughs> well, so this is something that I, I'm curious about because I've watched a couple of these satellite launches. Not all the SpaceX ones, but um, I've watched a couple of these. And I don't entirely understand uh, what I what seems to be the case is that these... Uh, is that the payloads handle transfer orbits and then final circularization mm-hmm. once they get up to geostationary or wherever they they end up going, but that the actual the mm-hmm. but that the initial circularization is handled via the uh, the second stage of the booster. Yeah. So now, as an avid Kerbal Space Program aficionado, <laughs> um, okay. We'll put that on your uh, CV. Right. Generally, what you want to do is you want to have your second stage burn out just before things are circularized so that it falls back quickly. So that it's not in a stable orbit. Yes. However, we don't seem to care about space junk as much as people playing Kerbal Space Program do. Well, but the thing is, if we're just getting it to a circularized orbit, that's a very low... I mean, I suppose... Yeah, I suppose that... That drifts down in a year or two. Also, but it means we're yeah, leaving also, a lot of a lot of second burnt out second stages in a relatively low orbit, which is you know where we put the space station and things like that, where it feels like maybe yeah, we shouldn't. I mean, they will fall down perhaps quicker than I'm, I'm not sure how quickly they fall down, mm-hmm. but unlike in Kerbal Space Program, there is atmospheric drag right. above a certain level. Right. Um, like there are atmosphere particles totally unrealistically space station, which is ridiculous. Everyone knows that like above is- 70 kilometers, there is no, no atmosphere. This is what I've learned None. about science in my years. Right. So I don't know how quickly those second stages fall down, mm. but they will fall down in a relatively near amount of time. Well, I mean, at first, I just, I wanted to confirm that my understanding is, is correct and that basically the second stages do end up in a temporarily stable orbit for some period of time and it's not that we end up because i just from what i've watched the basically yeah the payloads just chill out and they're like yep take me to space and then once they're in space they're like okay now i'm going to do stuff but they're not at all responsible for finishing up the circularization i I think in general you're correct okay um obviously it varies by mission Mm. and what they whatever they're trying to do and where they're trying to get Mm. 
So it's, it's hard to say in general. For SpaceX, for certain launches, certainly. Okay. Um, it, I mean, the, like NASA's launch stuff that I think um, the second or the upper stage that was, you know, responsible for getting a payload on track has left the system. So it, it wasn't it wasn't in a stable orbit. It was in a we're leaving the system orbit. Well, wait, sorry, wait, which which is this? So I think when they launched the Mars orbiters. Oh, um, well, I mean, yes, you have a transfer stage that's not going to be like, we'll just we'll just fall back to Earth now. Bye. Like, that's not how. <laughs> yeah, but it, yeah, it, it actually like floated away into deep space. Right. I, I mean, that's yeah. uh, that's rather expected, I think. Though. Like once you're leaving the 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 Earth, not this. We need a name for the system, Alex. That's not <laughs> the solar system, but is the Earthican system. The Terran the system? The Earth-Moon system? I guess. I don't know. The Earth-Moon system. The, the Terran system. It probably system, actually so... got stuck in a solar orbit. It didn't wind right. up in deep space. Well, but... but eventually, give it a few billion years, it'll it'll fling out. It'll find its way. <laughs> I think it'll just get incinerated. Either Well, either it'll collide with a planet or it'll get ejected, one of the two. Or the, it'll stick around until the sun explodes, and then it'll get incinerated. Okay. That's, that's also a possibility. <laughs> you said a few billion years. I mean, yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I guess I don't have a good sense of time scale as far as. I mean, if you, there's just the way. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know how how much of how much of say the asteroid belt will be flung out before the sun incinerates. I don't have a good sense of of kind of how random, uh, random non-stable orbiting bodies. Uh, how, how long it takes for them to shape up or ship out, which is kind of the rule of the rule of solar systems. Um, I don't You're know how long that takes you... relative to how long it takes for the sun to just, you know, encompass Explore. everything. You're telling me you don't have an intuitive understanding of what billions of years feels like. It's weird. I know, um, especially since it's getting shorter. <laughs> yeah, As I mean, I, grow older. I would expect. Maybe by, by maybe the time you're seventy. There we go. Dead. I'll have just a complete intuitive grasp of all of that. So here's the cosmic calendar will just be your normal calendar. Exactly. So, so here is the thing that I want us to launch because this is again also really useful in Kerbal Space Program. And so NASA actually did do some some small contributions to the Kerbal Space Program game. Yeah. Um, yep. And that they wanted to promote Asteroid Day and say, hey, you know, asteroids and how they could destroy us all. We could make them not destroy us all. Go out and, and try it for yourself. See how that works. That sounds boring. <laughs> I know. NASA's boring. <laughs> exactly. Why are we spending our tax dollars on this? Um, but anyway, some of the parts that they included were this uh, sort of grabber device that latches onto craft or, or asteroids. And you can basically then you know, nudge the asteroid in a particular uh, direction so that it does not collide with Kerbin. Uh, but what I've seen as being kind of a cool idea in Kerbal Space Program world is people building small little ships that chill out in low orbit and basically will just go ahead and find, you know, empty stages and stuff, that, you know, the various debris, and then just reduce its orbit enough such that it burns up in the atmosphere. And we've got a whole bunch of stuff that's sitting out in a graveyard orbit or in a, you know, very slowly decaying orbit that's mm-hmm. going to be there for, I, I think it, I think the graveyard orbit's something like millions of years. And just wondering, There's why don't we have... orbits that are like 
billions. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are some before we had this whole policy of like, you need to put this thing away when you're done. Like, you need to put your toys away when you're done, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is part of the mandate, though, is that basically if you have a satellite, you have to have a plan for its end of life. So that when it is no longer right. useful, you need to boost it up to a high enough orbit that it is very far away and not going to incinerate. Though ideally, you'd have it shrink its orbit such that it just comes crashing down and incinerates in the atmosphere. Those are kind of it, the two into options. Into the Australian outback. Exactly. Um, those are kind of the two ideal options. There have been some satellites that are like, yeah, we're totally going to do that. And then... They start to boost, and then the thing disconnects, or they discover they don't have enough fuel, and so they are in very weird orbits. Because, I mean, they're just, it's its abandonware, Alex. <laughs> we should repurpose that word. Right. Abandonware now means <laughs> abandoned satellites. Exactly. So it's my official. question is, why don't we have just a little, like, you know, orbital vacuum cleaner? Chilling out there, grabbing all the debris. Putting it back down. It sounds extremely expensive for very little return. Yeah, but, but Kessler syndrome. Did you not? You still haven't watched it's Gravity. Not... You still haven't watched Gravity, Alex. This is a big deal, according to Hollywood. Yes, according <laughs> to Hollywood. That's my problem. Let Hollywood spend its billions of dollars. I oh, yeah, make I'm a real life that. I don't movie. care who pays for it. I just want it to happen. I think it'd be a cool idea. Okay, you can pay for it. Kevin has launched his own space cleanup service. He's the space maid. Okay, so have we covered all of the available options for what will happen with SpaceX? (laughs) No, we've just covered the success. Okay, so so, Alex, we have some bad news. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately. I know, um, we've been very depressed. Uh, We've, this just in... Oh, sorry. For days. This just in several days ago. (laughs) Unfortunately, SpaceX, after failing to land its rocket, has dissolved its corporation in an admission of complete defeat. (laughs) The, The stock market in response has fallen by 48.9%. Oil is now selling at $0 a barrel. So everyone can drive... global warming is out of control. Everyone can drive everywhere, but there is no longer... Including space. But there is no longer anywhere to go. Except space. Does that work? I mean, that's the most likely failure case, right? (laughs) Yeah. The SpaceX fails as expected, and it ruins the U.S. economy. Right. Well, not just the U.S. economy. All of the other countries, you know, also tank because because they were planning on having their own SpaceX franchises, (laughs) like McDonald's. Right. Could just go out and franchise SpaceX for a few thousand SpaceX Japan, SpaceX China, SpaceX Australia. They were all you know starting up. People were investing tons of money into them. You know, everything was leveraged on space technologies and the entire economy, the entire global economy has now collapsed. It is it is very troublesome, but thankfully you're still here to be able to listen to this podcast. So, <laughs> yeah, you, you must be one of the lucky few that still has Internet and electricity. Exactly. Some people have internet and some people have electricity, but not very many people have both. Exactly. It's, it's kind like of the hard three, to have internet without electricity. It is the, but, it is the know, three people, people with, with satellite phones. 
that are <laughs> living on houseboats somewhere. <laughs> they, they dialed into like iTunes. Exactly. Like, like they called the iTunes hotline. Like, can you play me this podcast over the phone, please? Exactly. Sure. We got nothing better to do. Oh, this Apple is... has also outsourced their service to houseboats. Alex, this brings up a very good point. We are we are way too dependent on the. You know what we need to do to take Code Monkey Podcast to the next level. We need put it on a satellite. We need to start broadcasting on radio waves, just as a fallback option. <laughs> this is clearly so what we need we're, to get doing. When we release the season two box set, we will put it on a radio transmitter. And launch it into space. Exactly. Yeah. So you can just... Well, we talked about CubeSats in the past. It's like $10,000. We'll just have... We'll, yeah. The, the CubeSat can have all of our podcasts up to up to that date. And ideally some software so we can upload new ones. And it can simply broadcast straight That's down. Hard. So then if you want to listen to the CodeMonkey podcast, but you know the internet is down, you can simply wait until it's overhead and then tune in. Yep, to a random point. And yes. you'll be able to listen for ninety seconds. Exactly. You know what? As much as 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 much of a joke as that is, I think that'd be a really cool, like art style project. I think that is a oh, really. Oh, like, I agree. This, this is if, like if like, you want to bankroll it, I will design and build the satellite. <laughs> Not that hard. Like, I'll let you write the software. That would be incredibly awesome. We just put up a CubeSat that just loops our entire catalog, our entire back catalog, indefinitely. Ideally, we could upload new I mean, stuff only... to it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that gets tricky. Um, it's 200 miles, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's probably less than 200 miles to the lower orbits. Um, but they, then those start falling down fairly quickly. So I would say like it, about 200 miles, because mm-hmm. that's about where the International Space Station is. Um, so broadcasting over 200 miles direct line of sight isn't difficult. But it is not easy either, and certainly receiving those transmissions, you you could use a large antenna. Um, right. So if you had a low, you'd, you'd have to have a low frequency. We should we'd buy. We should we should also buy a really big antenna. Well, right, you'd have to. So you, you do some low frequency like AM signal, mm-hmm. um, and you'd have to get a really big antenna mm-hmm. that could pick up those larger. No, waves. Sorry, a very large um, antenna. And, it needs to be it needs to be the very large antenna. We need to we need to franchise out. <laughs> okay. I think there were some experiments with using larger trans like larger antennas in space, mm-hmm. but the solar winds would induce a current in the larger antennas. Ooh. Um and they would fry the the receivers. So you actually can't use a huge antenna in space. Well, the other question so, that I have about these CubeSats is how much stuff can fold out of them? As much as you want. So there's no... Okay. Hmm. I mean, the, the, it gets re- it's a cube. Right. You, you put the cube in, and then it gets released. And whatever your cube wants to do once it's just floating in space is totally up to you. Okay. So we could, like, we could extend out enormous solar panels. Ooh! If you could fit them in the queue. No, Alex, I've got a better idea. And it should unfold a solar sail. And okay, because even though we'll be making expeditions to Mars and stuff, it's not going to be commercialized for a long time. We could unfold a solar sail and we could become the first podcast broadcast on Mars 
if we start now by j- flying into mars orbit via solar sail yes or just fly into mars like fly into mars i wonder how much it would cost to contract someone to send a cubesat to mars i don't know but why 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 is spacex bothering with this like reusable blah 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 like just just come on let us throw some experiments around mars that'd be really awesome i was i was looking into some um hobbyist grade rockets that could actually make it into space Mm. um there have been a couple of instances of people launching things that have made it to space technically speaking i suspect that's not hugely i suspect the faa is not a huge fan of those people no (laughs) no i mean they've been like university groups and stuff so they've been like okay fine (laughs) um i don't know of any independent like hobbyist group that has managed to orbit anything though right um that would because that's the first step you have to get something orbiting before you can even consider trying to transfer away no could that's not true well that's not true at all you just go straight up alex yeah (laughs) but like just point the rocket towards space and then i don't think hobbyist group i don't think hobbyist groups are going to be able to jump right from, we touched space, <laughs> now we're going to rendezvous with Mars. Right. Without orbiting as an in-between step. Well, clearly there needs to be a that, Kickstarter. That's what I was trying to get. There needs to be a Kickstarter for, for a single you know, shared, shared payload rocket, to, even if not Mars, even some other planets, because you know, there's talk about maybe Mars is dumb and Venus is awesome. Maybe we should go there. Uh, mm. <laughs> Venus is too hot. I like I like it a bit colder. <laughs> I don't want a vacation on a hot planet, Kevin. Come on. Venus is a lot more stable. Yeah, but it's also a lot hotter. Yeah, well you don't go it's yeah, you don't land on it. It's you have you have Cloud right, City. Melt. You have Cloud City. How do you how do you not like but Cloud how, City? Are you are you really team uh, Mars? It's great. In the, in it the runs beta? on it, it it if if, if hey Cloud City almost requires an EM drive. <laughs> so, great. We'll just use a really big EM drive and some solar-powered or gas mines to power it, and they'll just float there. It doesn't need that at all, because you're dealing with a uh, ridiculously high-density high atmosphere. I mean, did you look at Bespin? It has that big, like, pointy <laughs> thing that's clearly an EM drive. It doesn't have, like, balloons. It has an EM drive. Well, see, now I'm not sure where your loyalties lie, if you're Team Mars or Team Venus. I'm very confused. I, I'm Team Mars. Mm. I team figured Mars as much. <laughs> also, Venus is much easier to get to. Yeah, but, like, you don't want to go there, so it doesn't matter. It's, like, it's much easier <laughs> to go to the gas station next door when I need, like, a snack, but I'll die, so what? I'll go to, like, the good restaurant. Why would... Why... Okay, is that... You you have some weird gas stations because if I just near, drink nearby. gasoline, if I just just drink gasoline, <laughs> not... technically I could derive some sort of fuel from it. Alex, I think, but I wouldn't want to. Yeah, I I don't think. Yeah, I, I think you misunderstand gas station snack bars. Like I think you may have been doing this wrong. In fact, I'm surprised that you're still up and kicking, given how given how misunderstand given the level of misunderstanding you seem to have. About how gas station mini marts work. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I tend to avoid them because I don't want to explode. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh man. But no, clearly we need to kickstart a rocket that will cuz cuz right now, yeah, you can get, you know, educational facilities and people who have a bunch of money can get stuff to low earth orbit. But that's boring. <laughs> a little boring. Yeah, I mean it's not even that how much delta v is it between getting to orbit and then getting to Mars in real delta v? A lot. We could probably google is it this. Like, <laughs> But, but I, like, in relative, is it, like, twice as much delta V? I wouldn't think it'd be that much more. Here we go. Delta V between Earth, uh-huh. Moon, and Mars. Oh, this is awesome. It's got a nice little little map there. Uh, what are the units here? Uh, it's, I mean, it doesn't matter. Is it, like, 1 versus 17? All right. Kilometers per second. Okay, so... To get to low Earth orbit is about 10 kilometers per second... Okay. To get then to what is GTO? I just care about Mars. Yeah, I, yeah, I've got to total these up though. From what oh, is what is sorry. GTO though? I don't know. Well, what is GT? Okay, so so you yeah. Right. Okay. So I'm just gonna total these up. We're not gonna do we're not gonna do all of these. Okay, so ten plus two point five plus point seven. It's so, a geostationary transfer orbit. Oh, okay. Right. Okay, so we've got we've got 12.5, Oh, no, cuz you can error break on a bunch of this. Right. Okay. If we assume that you could error break all of the things, um, then even the escape from Earth. No, well, no. <laughs> if we're if we're assuming that you can aerobrake everything after the Mars transfer burn, uh, thirteen point nine kilometers a second of delta v. Um, whereas Versus just the, to just the ten, 10 to get that. to low Earth orbit, right? So it's a third again as much to get to Mars, right? But also having fuel in space is really freaking hard because you've got to get it off of the Earth. Too. So, like, when we talk about, Unless like, oh, you it's make only it. a tiny bit. It's only a tiny bit once you get to space. Well, yeah, but you've got to bring whoa, up whoa, whoa, the additional whoa, whoa. fuel to get to space. And every what is it? Something like every ton in space is something like ten thousand tons <laughs> on the surface. Why is no? So there are a bunch of ions in the upper atmosphere, right? And ions are hydrogen, right? Mm-hmm. And there's ozone, which frequently breaks up. Its bonds, which ozone is three oxygen atoms, so frequently there are both hydrogen and oxygen atoms ions very high up. Why don't we just collect those? You want us to make more holes water. in the ozone layer? We'll just. I'm just going to take all this over here. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, obviously we'd be doing this on a small enough scale <laughs> that it wouldn't really matter. Well, presumably, um, I'm not. I'm not convinced that there's enough. Free-floating hydrogen. Like, what are you trying to make from it? Hydrazine? I want to make enough delta V. <laughs> oh, you just want to? You to just want to make some delta boost V? Boost the cube set. All right. Well, we should just yes. like launch a delta V factory. <laughs> a delta V farm. <laughs> you know, a renewable one. <laughs> well, there's there's particle streams coming off the sun, right? Mm-hmm. So what are those part of the? 
presumably those are mostly just hydrogen ions. Uh, this is what a solar um, sail does. <laughs> well, no. It, it it a solar sail rides the momentum of those it, uh, yes, hydrogen ions. Right. It harvests the I energy want to of capture I want to capture the ions themselves right. and use the ions to build rocket fuel to blow up. Right. You can do that if you're talking about nuclear propulsion. People are not a fan of that idea. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. Why, why would you need to use nuclear propulsion to combine hydrogen ions and oxygen ions? Wait, sorry, you want, wait, oh, oh so now you, you're presuming that there are a bunch of free oxygen ions everywhere? Well, no, I'm presuming now that there's just hydrogen ions. All right. But then you would need an oxidizer. Right. So you'd, you'd want to grab some sort of oxygen from somewhere. I'm not certain where yet, but you, you <laughs> okay. get the whole sum of oxygen in low Earth orbit. All right. And then... You condense both of them. You don't actually combine them into water. You just condense the hydrogen ions. Well, I mean, into combining them into water hydrogen. is how is basically what rockets do. <laughs> right. Exactly. So you condense the ions down into liquid form, both the hydrogen mm. from the sun and the oxygen from the ozone, because I want to make the hole bigger. Okay. Um, and then you, now you have liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, and now you can just boost yourself to wherever you want to go. Why don't we do that? Uh, we probably could. It's just a question of quantity and time. We we don't know of any other podcasts who are quickly approaching Mars, you know, levels of anything. So we presumably have some time if we get this launched now. We can sit in low Earth orbit for a while well, and collect some ions. No, 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 no. See, we can't just sit in low Earth orbit because that decays because there is actually atmosphere above 70 kilometers, weirdly enough. <laughs> The amount of time that it would take to harvest enough hydrogen from just solar winds would be a very long amount of time. Is it, though? I hear the winds are pretty strong up there. <laughs> I, all right. I mean, I, I, you, you, you construct a CubeSat and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> okay, as long as you pay to send it... If you if you pay to send it to space, I will pay for its construction. I will I will tell you this: if you uh, if you can figure out a way to get and to get to Mars to get to the Mar- to get to Mars in, let me see. I gotta put a I gotta put it like um yeah sure I'll say forty years. If you oh, can wow. if you can figure out a way to get a CubeSat oh. to Mars in forty years. And it would be capable of, of broadcasting our podcast. So it has to be in a low enough... To, to any point of the surface on Mars. So, so it just has to... No, no, it needs to get into a captured orbit. It needs to, it needs to get into a captured orbit. I don't care how because high... You up, want it to slow down when it gets there. Uh, well, presumably an aerobrake. It doesn't necessarily... I mean, you, you need a little bit of fuel to air break but it needs to it needs to somehow get into a captured orbit you can figure out a way to get a cubesat into a captured orbit in 50 years i will pay the ten thousand dollars to to do it the huh. your biggest challenge so is not going to be a- anything to do with the mars transfer or anything it's just going to be a matter of not having it collapse fall back to earth that is going to be the hardest part by a huge order of magnitude I'll just get a ladder and boost it back up whenever it needs it. 
It's got to get there into a captured orbit in 50 years. I, I'm, I'm throwing down the gauntlet, though. If you can do it, I will, I will find the money what? to make it happen. Okay. You'll just find it. It'll be outside the we'll road. We'll probably have many, many Patreons. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there must be a cheap way of getting from Earth orbit to Mars orbit. Alex, if, there must be. It's only 3,000 kilometers of Delta V. Yes. It's only 3,000 kilometers of Delta V. You've got to bring up the fuel to provide that. I mean, but the, I mean it, is, it is a very common kind of confusing point in that the amount of fuel that you can actually have in space requires a ridiculously huge amount of fuel to get into space. No, I agree, which is why I think I need to find a way of making fuel in space. Right. You, honestly, you're going to be far better off looking at a solar sail, though I don't think you can get there in 50 years. Um, your better option is to find one of the... I don't, I don't know how a solar sail could leave Earth orbit. You'd have to have time. a way of like unfurling it and then uh, like unfurling like refurling it yeah. because you're orbiting so well on, no like, you don't you don't have to refurl it you just have reflective and non-reflective size so you just rotate okay Ref you might with the reflective you, the other sides? strategy you might you might go to is we have passed the you're allowed to explore and exploit asteroids thing so you could try mining some yeah, asteroids but how do how do you how do you get a cubesat to an asteroid well <laughs> see once you're already the asteroid <laughs> Right. See, see. once you get to the asteroid point, I'm fairly certain a solar sail could work. How, how does a reflective versus non-reflective on a solar sail affect how much energy it's receiving from... I would think a reflective side would give it more energy because it's going to absorb the momentum from the impact. Right? I, do, so you have, I don't rightly know, but I know there's something something about absorbing photons versus not. I mean, because this is like there's the there's the Japanese solar sail um, that I think we've talked about before in the podcast, and that basically is what they were doing is using reflective and non-reflective uh, parts of the parts of the craft to handle steering. Okay, that's interesting. I, I I'm kind of curious on the physics works. I'm I'm equally curious because I I don't know. Uh, I'm gonna look it up. You know, I made it pretty much impossible for you to make this work by by saying that it has to get into a captured orbit. If it was an impact, that'd be way easier. <laughs> uh, maybe. Yeah, I'd have to calculate the orbit right. Well, but you no, you also have to have the fuel to boost yourself out of the atmosphere once you're captured in a captured orbit. Because you can use the drag to aerobrake. But then you've got to get yourself out of the atmosphere once you're at the apogee of your Well, orbit. you can aerobrake out, but then you'll have an odd orbit. It's circularizing that orbit. Right, 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 right. Whereas if you just crashed into it, you don't need the additional fuel once you get there. If the, if the eccentricity of the orbit is really, 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 really high, you could use a solar sail, presumably. If you just skimmed off the top of the oh, yeah. atmosphere mm -hmm. and you had like a, a year-long eccentric orbit, like, on the way back, mm. you could accelerate a little bit faster. That's true. Yeah, um, it's possible. Yeah, if you just barely captured, um, yeah, it that's that is doable. That's interesting. So when satellites and stuff go to Mars, they actually have to account for a few thousand kilometers um, due to solar pressure, even just without a sail, just 
by being objects themselves. Mm -hmm. So a total force, you can get five newtons with an 800 by 800 sail at Earth's distance. 800 by 800, we've talked what about are the that. units? Uh, meter. Okay, so you're going to pack an 800 by 800 meter sail into a CubeSat. Well, I don't need a newton. <laughs> Attitude control. Yeah, you need some gyros. Which means you also need power. Which yeah, I'm but not. You have a giant solar sail. Yeah. You can make it out. Make the solar sail out of silicon, <laughs> um, and then you can use it as a, as a big, basic giant solar panel. No, I'm pretty sure what's happening is you when you're dealing with the absorbed photons, that's not increasing your velocity. But you're dealing with when you reflect it, then you're dealing with that whole equal and opposite Where force. Where was the thing. moment? Where does the momentum go then? Because the particles have momentum. Right. It gets absorbed by the sail. Where does the momentum go? Space. <laughs> Whereas when the presumably when this when it reflects off a solar sail, then it it's exiting with a similar amount of velocity and therefore well, has, a similar it has amount the exact, of momentum. It has the exact same amount of momentum because it's massless and it has to be traveling at the speed of light. So the momentum has to remain the same. So it's imparting. So basically, you're you're moving away from the photon as it bounces off of you with a fixed momentum. Hmm. I can't find the answer. <laughs> Where is it? I mean, I think basically what happens is the photon get absorbs. It gets absorbed. It becomes heat, which then irradiates into space um, in all directions. That would be my primitive. Okay, that's possible. And the, but, yeah, because it, it does definitely if it reflects. That, it has a constant momentum, and so the thing that it reflects against is going to move away from it with the same momentum, though obviously scaled crazy far down because of mass. Anyway, we know solar sails work, and there must be some way to control them. <laughs> exactly, uh, they, solar <laughs> sail cubes at Mars. How to get a CubeSat <laughs> to Mars? Hey, NASA prepares for first interplanetary CubeSat mission. There we go. Just well, really? Up. Yes, two CubeSats are going with the next lander. But that that's that's, that's not cool. the no that's not the same thing, Alex. <laughs> there we go, Kevin. I did it. <laughs> no, well, no, you're not. You're not. The, well, yeah, okay, that is a story. But okay, that's <laughs> that is. You know what? I would say that's that is fair. That is fair game. If you can if you can <laughs> hitch a ride with somebody who's already going to Mars, then yeah, I think that counts. That's gotta count. But I, I doubt these are cube sets that somebody just like, it's like, hey, here's some money. Can you just, well, I mean, <laughs> I doubt they were publicly. I bet with enough money, you <laughs> said you'd fund it. I never said no, how I much said, you'd no, have to No, I fund. said I would, I would, I would find the $10,000 cube set fee. Which is currently what it, what it costs to get a, a low Earth orbit cube set. Why don't more people just do that for no reason? <laughs> Probably because people who can afford to are smart enough not to. <laughs> I mean, as cool as it is, and as like bragging rightsy as it is, there is very little utility that I can think of to actually putting a CubeSat in space. Yeah. From an edge, like if you're an educational institution and you have the resources to do stuff with it, then then yeah, I could understand. But you know, if I if I won the lottery, I doubt that'd be something I would do. I I think it'd be very cool really? to do, but I wouldn't have a I wouldn't have. I would totally it. do that. <laughs> I, 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 it would literally just have like my face on it or some <laughs> stupid thing like that. Yeah, but then what happens 
when there is a Kessler, a Kessler syndrome disaster, and then it's your face that crashes into the habitat. That would be awesome. <laughs> Unless someone died. Then that, that's terrible. just what I'm saying. You don't want your face to be the thing that destroyed space for all mankind. <laughs> <laughs> just destroys all of space. Exactly. All of space is gone. So, uh, Alex, we should talk about Pirate Bay for academia. Okay. Can we? Oh, can we pirate a CubeSat? <laughs> Is that what you're suggesting? Oh, that'd be great. So you want me? Okay. So you want to just just hijack, just hack into one of the CubeSats that's already, it's already yeah. on its way. All right. And have it start programming, like just broadcasting our podcast instead of whatever useless junk it was going well, to be. There like, is an option. And, and hello, NSA listeners. By the way, thank you for tuning in. <laughs> I, I hardly think the NSA cares if we hack into a satellite that's in orbit. It's not, you know, the United States. Well, hack into that North Korea satellite. <laughs> anyway. We'll do you a favor, NSA. I, last week we talked about legal stuff and controversial opinions. Let's talk about some legal stuff and controversial opinions again. Because that Hooray! was fun. Hooray! I think we'll agree on this more, though. You think so? Okay. Um, so I do. there is a pirate bay for academic journals. Yep. And, and it's the greatest thing ever invented. <laughs> so a- academic journals are a fun thing. So what happens in academia is you and I throw a whole bunch of money to the government and the government gives money to universities to make things. Those universities spend the money on professors and, and projects that the professors are working on. And the professors are like, hey, we got some science. Then they take that science and they write it into a paper. And then they give it to this other dude. And that other dude hides it. So that anyone who wants to look at it can't. And that's how science happens. Unless you pay the other guy. Well, right. If you pay the other guy, he will gladly give it to you. Uh, well, gladly. Eh. <laughs> he will give it to you in a format that's inconvenient. He'll make you sign up and register with this obnoxious stuff. He'll, they'll sometimes bundle all of this stuff so you can't just get single access to, to articles and things like that. Um, this has been... Okay, so he'll frownily give it to right, you. Right, he'll frownily... Uh, yes, very begrudgingly give it to you. The prices um, for Brownly. a single article can range from anywhere. Generally, when I'm trying to find an academic paper, it's a cost of maybe $30 for a paper. Yeah. And these are Sounds like, right. for like, you know, a three or four page paper. <laughs> uh, so, you know. <laughs> the most well-paid writers. $10, $10 are. a page. Well, no, that's the thing is the... the t- the, the 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 researchers don't aren't, aren't the ones making that money. The researchers get the joy of exposure. <laughs> yeah, it's the for-profit universities basically mm, that have won the grants. Not entirely. Um, it is a, a largely really? a, a lot of it is the publishers themselves, uh, because because they're facilitating both the publishing and the peer review process of those of those submitted papers. Um, mm-hmm. Then it is, to some extent, the for-profit universities. Then it also is, to some extent, um, the... Well, no, that's I was going to talk about patents, but that's a whole other thing. 
Oh, that's, yeah. We don't want to that's, get Yeah, that's also a nightmare in academia, but a whole separate thing. But the point is that I have found myself in a position a lot of times where I will see something on the internet, which is weird, I know, but I'll say, that's, <laughs> that's, that is interesting, but it seems like it might be flawed. I would like to know exactly what they meant when they did that study. And I will go, mm-hmm. what is the thing? What, what is the, th- what did the actual study do? Was it like, we tested this, this drug on two people and only one of them died? Like, is it, or is it like we tested this like <laughs> on a million people and one of them died? Like, because, you know, news media, not always the most facty of media. Well, they like facts, but just fast facts. Right. Not well researched. They're like, facts, well, only one person died. Right. You know, when it was, but they won't they'll leave out the part where it was out of one person. Right. Um, or if, you know, there's various sampling biases or whatever, and, or, you know, a lot of times they'll report, you know, red wine may be good for you. I'd be like, well, what did the research actually say? Like, what were the conclusions that were drawn? What was the confidence in the paper? What are these? What are these? What is the actual information behind it? It's very difficult to find that usually, um, and the reason is that oftentimes these articles are written not off of someone who did pay these journal- these uh, academic publishers fifty dollars or whatever uh, to read the article, but they're often uh, basing it off of press releases that are prepared and the abstracts, right? That summarize the article or that summarize the the actual research, and then they go. That summary is already not abstract enough. I'm going to make it into a newsy type of thing. Um, but I find myself in a position where I go and I'm like, I'd like to find the research. It is very difficult to get access to. Because yeah. a lot of these publishers have very explicit rules that you can publish this thing, but you can't make it available. And we have you know I- exclusive rights to distribute this and charge for it. Um, so... I found that frustrating, and it turns out that other people have found that frustrating too. Because now there is a service which is a a, a a pirate bay for academic papers, and basically what they're doing is they're using uh, accounts of people who uh, people who opt in to share their credentials uh, for these services. Well, they'll go in and just download all of the things, and then copy them, and then share them yep. for free. I I got into this because I, I didn't even realize there was a whole sort of issue about this until a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, because this isn't the first time that information like this has tried to been sort of shared and opened up um, in ways that aren't technically legal. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is technically someone owns these papers and the publishers technically probably have the right they, legally they to do. do what they're they, doing. It's not a tech. They absolutely do have the the right to do yeah it. but i don't want to try to yeah i i, Le- I want to introduce a gray legal, area where none legally exists. they have the right to do that. yeah um and i didn't even realize this was an issue until a few years back um there was a very famous incident uh there was an mit student by the name of aaron schwartz um who was very much an activist of making this type of information public um and mit like most universities has paid a large amount of money to have basically a, a coverage all license so that all their students can access all of these papers without paying money. Um, like the, the university just pays a one set fee so that all their students can access all the papers. Right. Um, and he 
and Aaron Schwartz uh, would often access through a higher speed data connection um, by breaking into a server room the archives of all of these papers and download them all and then distribute them. Right. Um, and MIT found out and started this really large legal uh, issue battle with him. Um, and because he was a young man, uh, he thought his life was over and unfortunately committed suicide. Uh, and that was a very huge event that happened when I was in high school. Um, and it really, it was, it's, it's sort of this idealistic battle. Um, like, information should be free. Like, in theory, if all of this information and all of these papers are freely distributed and access and accessible to everyone, it will increase the productivity of science and the general knowledge of science of the general populace, which will then further increase the amount of science that we can do and achieve, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of... Because... If these news articles that get written about the abstracts and about the general summaries of these papers are then allowed to access the full papers, right. it's the, it's perhaps the, it's it would the trickle improve... down theory of of information. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it would improve the quality of the articles and it would improve the general understanding of the science to the general population. Better yet, the articles could even also... be like, "Hey, look, there's a link if you want to read more." Right. For for right. nerds I mean, like us, that would be convenient. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But even their own summaries would be increased in quality. Right. And then further still, people who are working in similar fields who are students, but not necessarily perhaps students at universities that can afford these large, because it's not cheap to access all of these papers. I mean, the papers themselves are quite expensive and the publishers charge a very hefty fee. And there's not, not all universities will opt to spend Harvard, that. for example, um, has complained that they can't afford the academic journal have, licensing. Have they? Fees. Yes. Wow, I did not know that. Well, but yeah, you know, so Harvard being one of <laughs> being one of the poorer universities at our in our country uh, cannot afford the, these fees. Um, so you can imagine how other universities uh, struggle to pay to access them. I know my university, I think, has a, a limited license, mm-hmm. um, so there, there's stuff that we can access, and but there's stuff that gets walled off. I mean, I think MIT had access to basically all the journals and all the different things. Well, it's important to mention as well that even if, um, even with these licenses, there is, you know, back when I was doing research for my degree, simply the fact Mm -hmm. that everything was behind all of these, these various gates that I could get into, but I had to go through various portals and access this site through that site and get these credentials and all those things. The fact that it is very difficult to access this information, even when it is available, even when, you know, the university that I was uh, pursuing my degree at was throwing tons of money at these publishers, it makes it very unlikely that I'm going to bother. You know, it's much easier to go ahead and look at the footnote on a Wikipedia link than it is to find any academic paper. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I agree. Um, it's much more i i understand that the publishers have these illegal things but i don't care i think <laughs> it's to the benefit of society if these things are in the open mm-hmm. um and that we share and collaborate in science to the betterment of all mankind well so there are so i don't care <laughs> that it hurts the publishers i'm sorry publishers uh, well so the the reason that's been put forward because there is a movement called open access and these yep. are alternative journals that don't 
charge, basically. Um, or sometimes they'll have uh, kind of a, 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 a time-delayed rollout. You know, there are different kind of forms of open access, but open access is kind of the name for this movement of uh, trying to publish the actual research in a way that eventually becomes accessible to everybody. And there was actually a, uh, a case that is not a case, but a law that was proposed and subsequently, you know, disappeared in the floors of Congress. <laughs> Surprise. Um, that basically mandated that any research that was done with taxpayer money has to be made available to the taxpayers when it's done. Right, so and that, that just makes like sense. That's, <laughs> that's just a common sense law. Who but the publishers would say, no, that doesn't make sense. Well, so there are, there are, a, couple of, there are a couple of reasons that, it's, that are somewhat legitimate that have, been mar that have been argued. I don't think that you can argue for the current... Well, you, certainly you can argue for anything. I think it's hard to argue that we should be charging $50 to view... A, a paper one time um yeah but the the argument is that the idea of these journals is what facilitates peer review so the idea is you do research i go ahead and i do research and i do really crappy research right and i go hey i've done some research if everything is public i go ahead and i publish it and then there's some research and i say it turns out that uh, the sun is a cube how about that? I did some science. <laughs> I discovered that the sun is a cube. Now, in the traditional field of academic journals, I would go ahead and submit my paper out. And by the way, I'll look for a lot of for a lot of uh, university staff, your job and your tenure is kind of based on the need to continually publish. Um, and so this isn't just yeah. like, hey, I just felt like doing some research today. Discover that the the sun is a cube. Um, this is something that generally you're, is part of your is part of your career and your and your career track uh, as a researcher. Um, but I go ahead and do that mm -hmm. in the traditional publishing field. If I submit this to, I don't know what the appropriate journal would be, um, which is a little embarrassing. But if I go ahead and submit it, they would go ahead, they would look at it, and they would submit. They would have they would have people sign up to peer review any of the submissions that come in. Some guy would take a look at the paper and go like, uh, "No, you're crazy." And then that journal wouldn't publish it. And to the extent that the journals are more rigorous with their peer review process, they end up with a high reputation as being, all right, you know, this, this thing got published in this very reputable source. And therefore, we right. can assume it, that it's, it's been more rigorously tested, or at least more rigorously reviewed, and that it's not making no, outlandish I, claims. I agree. But the peer review process isn't dependent on any one publisher or even publishers themselves. Like... If you published that paper and I went, well, it's just this one guy, I'm going to go run this experiment too, then I can either publish a paper that says, I can't confirm this result mm -hmm. because it doesn't make sense, or I can then publish a paper that says, well, I came to the same conclusion following this guy's method, so I give him a, a thumbs up, plus one. <laughs> right. Right? And so eventually, you know, chains might build up, mm -hmm. and... You, you would get, say, okay, we've got five or six people and you'll have a, you know, a fifth or a sixth paper that's published that says, yeah, you know, I, I confirm this result of these five or six other people. Right. Like, peer review doesn't need to be done by a journal. It, it can be very easily done by the scientists themselves. The, well, the problem, though, is that um, it's difficult to... The problem is that there's a lot of research. 
and it is very difficult at a glance yep. for you as a if if everything was out there in the wild it'd be very difficult for you to look at an individual paper in isolation and go is this valid or not the idea of the peer review system is that it's not just that the journals are having are like picking random people off the street to peer review they're also filtering out who they oh, ask right. that you're dealing with okay someone who also knows something about this field also looked at this article and you know, m- or multiple people who know something about about what this research is about looked at this and said, you know, this this passes muster. That the idea is that, yeah, and that's kind of one of the arguments is that facilitating that is is the value proposition that uh, the academic journals provide. Um, and mm-hmm. that if we have something that's just kind of I like mean, a Reddit upvote system, that then you know, all right, you know, fifteen, thirteen year olds thought that yes, I was right. The the Earth is a cube. Um, I mean, obviously, it wouldn't right. be like that, and mm. you, you'd have to consider the reputation of the of the author themselves. Like you, as some no-name astronomer, claiming that you've detected the no, sun. I'm not doing is this under the guise of an astronomer. I'm doing this under the guise of a pianist. <laughs> okay, that, that that'd be my credential well, in deciding that the that the sun is a cube. You are still a no-name pianist, Kevin. I'm sorry. The, right, but the thing is that if you were to just base it off of the reputation of the author, um, that does mean that no new research is ever what? credible. And it also means that uh, you, as the reader, have to, have to memorize or otherwise keep a list of your own personal idea of the reputation of everybody whose work you read. That is kind of true. So... You, you'd presumably, you'd have a community of, like, one person isn't going to be trying to digest all of this different information, right? Like, you you and I fairly probably wouldn't read that many, like, biology <laughs> journals. We'd read a lot of the astronomy journals. Mm-hmm. Really wouldn't I've read, read that some. many I've... biology. <laughs> right, you know, some. Mm. But you, not, not necessarily our area of interest. Mm-hmm. So I think I think the communities themselves would be self-regulating. You'd have you ha- already have cornerstones of the communities, like you have very well-known like uh, astronomers and very well-known biologists and very well-known chemists who have spent their lives studying things. And not that no no new information would or no new papers couldn't ever be reputable, but if they're proposing something interesting. And they propose it to the community that is open and accessible. Then someone, presumably, who even even who just had one paper on their name might notice it, and then they might do the experiment, and it might travel up if it's an interesting idea. It might not. Mm-hmm. It could stagnate, and you just have this random paper that may have profound implications, but no one really pays attention to it because it wasn't from anyone. Mm-hmm. But I uh, I don't know. The yeah, you know, the peer review process you could you could certainly optimize it. But I, I think that the natural communities that spring up around subject areas I mean I see you look online how many people obsess about whatever particular thing they're interested in all the time and like put in tons and tons of hours of work on things that isn't their job. Mm-hmm. So when you have people who are naturally in interested and engaged in the research that they're doing and the and the area I would tend to think they'd be very interested in whatever gets 
published. I think part of the thing, though, is that this stuff gets uh, certainly over time the amount of the amount of published uh, published papers has increased dramatically um, as time has gone on, mm-hmm. and and it becomes far it becomes much more specialized. That um, just because I am you know interested in biology or do research in biology does nothing to say that I have any idea about the impact of evolution on the uh, laryngitis of Neanderthal children. Like, <laughs> that, that because everything becomes so very specialized, there is this issue of... Um, no, I mean, it comes down to a question of epistemology, of how do we know what we know? If we know things based off of the reputation of the person who says that something is true, or how we, you know, the, basically the whole idea of the peer review system is to try and fix this whole problem of nobody can have enough expertise to know much outside of a very limited area, right? I mean, you and I mm-hmm. are both software people, there's an awful lot that we'd be really, really terrible at in software. Oh, yeah. Um, I agree. But I think there are also a lot of people. <laughs> and I think just... Right, 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 right. But you're not... You, we're not just looking at a question of... I mean, if I, if I were able to say, here's, an, here's, a, here's a paper, and then I was just able to ask all of the people, is this a good paper? That'd be, <laughs> that'd be one thing. Even then... Well, here's this wonderful thing called the internet. Right. You could take it to conferences, shop around, ask people to give it give it their plus one. And maybe a few years later, I could come to a reasonable idea in my mind, based also filtered by my my thought about the reputation of the people whose opinions I asked. Then maybe a few years later, a few years later, I could get an idea of the value of these of of the particular paper that I'm looking at. The problem is, how do you make it? How do you make something accessible such that? If I'm trying to come into a field that may not be my my field of expertise, how do I come in and evaluate? The the problem is that all of this, and especially when these papers have an impact on public policy, mm-hmm. you know that yeah. this has to be for the, the 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 reputation system has to be so refined that a politician can know whether it's a good or bad paper. That's a very difficult bar, <laughs> and it's not one I by but the way that I, I think we've hit yet even with the current system. But I think that just a kind of a, a free-for-all becomes very, very I, challenging. I don't think it's a difficult proposition to decouple that peer review process from the publishing process, though. Right. So just because you publish a paper out in the open doesn't mean that the university itself doesn't then pay to have it peer reviewed. Right. Um, and, that's, and that's something that's been proposed as part of the open access movement, is trying to separate publishing uh, and just say, no, your job, if you want to be a publisher, that's fine. Your job can be to laminate and bind the, this collection of papers and then send them off and have fun with that. But you're not, your job is not to be part of the peer review process. Though there is also then a right. question of who pays for the peer review process and what conflicts of interest can be introduced there. If the university is paying to have its own researchers' papers peer reviewed, maybe it would decide to not pay a certain peer review entity if it did not approve more of the papers. Well, I, w- I would assume in case of like government grants, it would be stipulated who would perform the peer review. And the, the grant itself would stipulate how, how much and where that money would go. So then the, the, grants are so fairly then the peer review company that has the best lobbyists becomes 
the de facto. The, I'm all, Bowering I'm not, I'm all not, the lobbyists. <laughs> all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make the point that it is a, it's not just yeah. kind of like a, a cut and try, like everything should be open, obviously, because I also would like everything to be open and free. Um, and to be I, honest, think I think everything should be open. Obviously, I think the I think the whole idea. Like personally, I love the fact that there is a, a pirated version. I'm not going to use it, but this is kind of the best of both wow. worlds. In that one, the peer review process is somewhat isolated. So the stuff that I'm getting still, I can still look at at where it was published and and base my evaluation of its of its standing off of that. But then I can also get it for free. So it's mm-hmm. kind of the best of both worlds for right now until it gets shut down. Um, it's also the case that a lot of times um, these journals are now moving into a position where um, you can you can publish thing into a, into a closed journal, and then a few years later, you also you then as the researcher have the right to go ahead and make it public yourself. Um, and so, if you go to Google Scholar, a lot of times you'll find the top article, or you know, if you're looking for a particular paper, the top one will be, "Hey, yeah, we totally have the abstract. Pay us a three hundred dollar a month subscription fee." And you can read it, and you'll say, nope. And then you go down to the second one. You're like, oh, it's just on professor.something.edu.com slash papers. Like, okay, <laughs> I'll just read that one. <laughs> I, I'm hesitant to say I'd be okay with a one-year restriction on paper. So, like, you could pay for, like, an early access within the first year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, under the stipulation that news media, like, you know, newspapers and stuff could get access to it for, for free because i think it's it would be it's important that they're not just writing about the abstract and that they can have access to the data mm-hmm. um for proper reporting i mean but of course i i i'd want to see the distribution of how often um journals get paid for um mm. i imagine it's not there's not like a huge spike i imagine it's just a fairly consistent thing it's not like a youtube video which gets most of its views in like the first 24 hours and then has like a long tail on it um well i mean are you talking about i don't know like if you're talking about individual articles then yeah i would expect that you're talking about the journal itself then no i mean because you're i mean it's you know basically no i am talking about individual articles oh then no i would i mean Why, why would an individual if it's a why would an individual article have a huge spike Right when it's published, I mean, because it's going to be it's going to be cited more. If you're looking at topic. what is the most recent research on cholesterol, that's going to show up. If, if, whereas the number of people that are looking for an article about cholesterol from 1960 is probably less. Well, I'm sure it's accessed more in the first year right. than any other subsequent year, but I'm not saying it's going to be this huge difference. Well, it might. Be. I mean, it's I, I think it's going to be a long tail curve. I just don't know what the slope of that curve is. I think it'd be a more gradual curve, but Maybe. I could be wrong. Again, I, I, I don't have access to that right. data. Someone should do a study <laughs> and then release it for free. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the only point where I would be hesitant to agree with you there is um, who decides what's a news organization? Well, I mean, it would probably be the publishers themselves. Like, yeah, see, I don't like that either. Because like, maybe I'm a blogger who blogs about science news. Well, I, I would I wouldn't say like it's a whitelist. I'd say you'd have to have like a readership. Like if you could prove Ooh. you have a readership above, so then I have to give you access uh. to my to my data. 
I got I got to release. Yep. You're, you're mandating the publishers have access to my trade secrets, Alex. You like that precedent? <laughs> no, that is not. You don't have to go to them. You can say, well, fine, I'll just pay the $20. I don't want to give you this information. There, you have a very easy option. Just pay twenty dollars. I mean, no, but even then, I don't. Sure I don't think there should be a distinction. I think that um, some some random person who's interested in building a CubeSat should be able to go ahead and look at the latest information on CubeSat research and whether or not they're a news organization. I don't think that. Oh, I agree. I, I don't. I don't like the idea that that there is preferential treatment based on any sort of condition outside. Oh, I of agree. That. I said I'd be amenable to it, but I don't <laughs> think that's my preferred option. Is just to make it open and separate the peer review and just deal with it. Right. I think it'll be beneficial to society. Mm -hmm. But I, I, as a middle ground, I, I think, you know, a one year statute of limitations mm -hmm. is okay. It's certainly much better than where we are now. Yeah. So yeah. And you know, in the meantime, if you want to pirate uh, all of your academic research, we are not openly advocating for it, but we did talk about it. Yes, we did talk about that being a possibility. <laughs> Do with that information what you will. Exactly. As long as it's not illegal. Um, or is it? I, I mean, know. it is something that it, it, it does bother me a lot because I really... It's something that bothers me about the internet is that it is very easy to find very shallow information. Oh, yeah. Um, and it is very difficult to find legitimately researched information and i just uh, that seems so backward to me that the you know the internet is supposed to be this wonderful equalizer um and yet the the stuff that you can find easily is pretty much what's on a wikipedia page um and anything that goes into more depth of yeah. that or if you want to go ahead and say yeah okay i'd like to actually dive in and figure out what are the assumptions that you made i'd like to you know the basically the way that information dissemination is currently structured discourages critical thinking it is a a matter of take yeah uh, take your assumptions based off of the credibility of someone who's also making their assumptions off the credibility of someone who's also and you know kind of turtles all the way down. So you're you we're getting you know the majority of stuff on the internet is at at best kind of fifth hand information. I think it's very difficult to improve yeah. collective intelligence that way. I I, I absolutely agree. Which is why I think that it's a shame that people have to resort to the like piracy sites like this. I think it should be open. Certainly, things which are funded by the government. Yeah, I I would say everything. Yeah, everything. Yeah, that was but, that. The, I mean, it yeah. it met an awful lot of resistance from academic journals, as you can imagine. Well, and I'm yes, sure then it sort of disappeared. <laughs> you know, ninety percent of your income. Well, that's going away. <laughs> I'm, whoa boy we love that law <laughs> um, actually I think the the stipulation of the law was just that it has to be made publicly available two years after uh, after oh, publishing two years right. <laughs> well right so it's just not <laughs> a non-exclusivity thing you know so uh, but yeah I mean certainly if, I, if I'm if i paying for you to research guns. space cows then I should be able to know what you found out about space cows um, I found that they're delicious and we should make more hamburgers.